0: From Sugar23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. Now, the world is in such turmoil and conflict at the moment, and we're always looking at the news and being so upset by what's happening. And I thought it might be a nice respite to go inward and talk about relationships in our lives and some of the things that we actually have control over, which is how we interact with those closest to us. And so there is no one that's better uh, than talking about this than Esther Perel. And in 2018, I spoke to her about her book that was current then called The State of Affairs. So Esther's first book was called Mating in Captivity, and actually That's the one that I feel like I need right now. I am pregnant, I am engaged and about to get married, and I think we're both asking ourselves how do we keep this thing alive with so much change? Um, So in the conversation we had back then, we kind of cover all these topics, but I think we can always learn so much from Esther and her point of view on the world and how Um, you can keep things alive. So I don't want this conversation to take people to anxious places more. It's about having Esther and her great point of view to lead us back to great connection, great communication with those we love most. I really hope you enjoy this episode. It's been so many years since I've wanted to have Esther Perel in here ever since this podcast started and um, I've been a huge fan of your work, but it's been important in many ways that we'll kind of get into in this talk. So I wanted to thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. And congratulations on your book, The State of Affairs Becoming, a New York Times bestseller and basically rippling through the world you know, as we speak. Um, So I guess my first question is, after Mating in Captivity, why did it take 10 years to write another book and why was infidelity the subject that you couldn't turn away from?
1: Mating in Captivity came out in 2006. And then I went on a world book tour for about two years to about 20 countries. In many of these countries, people would ask me questions about the one chapter that covered the subject of infidelity. It was called The Shadow of the Third. And I kept wondering. It's like this was a book that looked at the dilemmas of desire inside relationships. And yet people kept asking me questions about what happens when desire goes looking elsewhere, which is one way of understanding infidelity and i started the research for this book in 2009 not really knowing if there would be another book i'd never thought i would write i never thought i would write the first book let alone that i would write a second book but i always knew that i only write if i feel i have something significant to say mm. um and that that is substantive and that and and that really shapes the conversation um not only adds to the existing one and so I knew also that writing requires for me to step back from the world, to become intensely focused, to kind of hunker down, and it's not an easy thing for me to do, to disappear from the world and from my, my other activities. And so I needed to feel ready to go in. I knew it would take about two, two and a half years. I knew that. And so I waited till I felt ready. And at one point, I wrote the proposal, and which was... Accepted quickly, but I also knew from the proposal that I was once again onto something that was worthy of the effort, of the work, um, and and of the process. You know, and so I began to write in two fourteen, and the book is out, and we are in two seventeen. I
0: think what's so interesting about the idea of affairs, and I we've all been touched by them in one way or another and you talk about that so beautifully in the book how sometimes you know we could be one of the three parties in um you know the one who's having the affair the one who's apparently kind of suffering from the partner who has had one or be the the third person um but you make a point that Affairs can bind whole communities and families, and I thought that was such an interesting point. Um, I feel like I've definitely looked my life has been affected by you know infidelity, and it's how I've seen the world and I'm wondering what happens as a child or someone in a family who's touched by an affair, mm-hmm. as a young person, mm-hmm. how does that affect their ability to kind of form attachments later Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm.
1: life? So, you know, I started the research in 2009 and that meant that every country I went to present at, I began to interview about this. So my work is quite anthropological, Mm -hmm. ethnographic and clinical. And then for the last three years, I only saw couples or individuals who were struggling with the experience of infidelity. That became the exclusive subject of my practice so that I could really go deep and hone in. And I've worked with hundreds, if not thousands of people now who have been affected by the experience of infidelity. And it became very clear that if I asked people, not have you cheated on, be cheated on, but have you experienced infidelity in your life as a child of a parent who left for another partner? as a child of a parent who was unfaithful, as a friend whose shoulder is wet from somebody weeping on it, as a friend who's been taken into the confidence of somebody who's in the thralls of one, or any one of the triangle protagonists, that about 80% of every audience raises their hand. And so it became clear that it's systemic. But then it also became very clear that it's intergenerational. I saw a family this week. The girl was young. The mother divorces. the mother has a new lover. They move to another country. The mother never says that this is the child of her lover. She pretends it remains it's the child of the first husband, so that he would actually pay child care. And this goes on. She's in her 40s now. And only after the mother dies can the secret be revealed? And can she reconnect with her real father? And it, it just, you, you can't make this up. This has always been material of literature, but this is entering my office on a daily basis. I meet a young man and he tells me that, you know, it's the worst thing that could ever happen in Fidelity. It's the ultimate betrayal to then realize that in fact, his parents had him when they were still in an illicit love. Um, it's endless. It's, it's young children who open the phone of their parents by accident. It's adult children whose parents have been together for 40 years and who cannot accept that one parent would fall in love with someone else and choose to live with that person and destroy a family and act so selfishly without understanding necessarily the intricacies of what happened in this long 40-year-old marriage, which is quite a successful marriage in and of itself, if you look at longevity as one of the markers. So children enter into this story in multiple ways, at different ages and through the different characters. They can be the child of the woman who has been the lover to a married man or to a married woman. I have Mm -hmm. those two. Um, In the new season of the podcast, there is a couple of two women, and for eight years they were having an affair as supposedly the friend that was Mm. every day at the house. (laughs) They then proceeded to live together, and it's 20 years later. But the secret has never been revealed on the origin of their relationship. It's presented as if it started afterwards. I can go on and on about the way that lies and secrets proliferate and spread across the generations, how they mushroom, how they bind people... Um, and this is a subject that is often shrouded in secrecy and in shame, which is part of why I wanted to write this book. I felt that we need a new conversation about the oldest sin and one that is more caring and more compassionate for all the people involved. Do you think it is important and or necessary
0: to kind of um, acknowledge those secrets and have them see light or do you think people can work through that whatever's happened to them acknowledging it themselves without kind of a
1: communal truth telling Just- no for for most of history women kept their illegitimate children secret they knew that if this ever came out they would lose everything their children, their status, their home, their livelihood. So um, the question about revelation of secrets always has to be measured mm-hmm. with the consequences of the revelation. If there is violence, if there is destitution, if there is ostracism, you live with your secret. You, mm-hmm. bear, you bear the consequences You know, that way. If there is healing or resolution, then you prefer to reveal it. Sometimes when people reveal a secret, you want to ask. I met a woman recently. You know, I've been signing books. I've, you can't believe what I people tell I can only me. imagine. <laughs> in the 30 seconds that I'm signing the book. It's a, it's a, I'm a walking confessional. And one woman would tell, t- you know, my husband just told me that he had an affair 15 years ago when we were in our... Like, why did he tell her? And she's like, she says to me, why did he tell me? Like, why do I have to live with this now? you know, because now he feels better.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Was that with me in mind? Because he wanted to be clean, because he felt like he wanted to be completely honest. You know, um, I'm not sure that that has been so good for me. So, you you know, but of course, the woman who won't be told or the man who won't be told may say the exact opposite. It's only after you've been told that you can decide (laughs) if it was the right thing for you to want to know it or not. And you cannot predict all of this in advance. But it is important when you think about revelation or transparency to ask, who's it for? Is it with kindness in mind for the well-being of the other person? Or is it because I will live better? Because my Mm. conscience will be clear. My nightmare will end, but yours will begin. Oh, Esther, that's such a great answer. It's a very a complicated question to tell or not to tell, what to tell, when and to whom. And I think that we, it, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It needs to be very carefully examined. There are positive and negative consequences to both. People have lived with secrets from the moment humanity has existed, all kinds of secrets.
0: I mean, this goes back to all your research and everything you say about mating in captivity too. At what point do we have our private selves or our private erotic life? Um, How much do we have to share that with our partner? Do there are limits? Like you talk so beautifully about how marriage now is often seen. You know, we find that person who's going... I mean, not to be complete, uh, not to complete us, but the more that our society has become, um, you know, disconnected, and we don't have the big community to fulfill, you know, our intellectual needs. We want to, you know, laugh with our girlfriends in a certain way. Now, the the partner we choose seems to have to hold so much for us, and yet, with that kind of complete transparency the erotic, the kind of desire of the other kind of seeps away after time if you're that honest about everything or every text or every interaction. So I'm wondering, you know, how do we keep our private selves private and, and be honest? So I'm just kind of, I guess, talking about the lines that there are in terms Look, of live, how much we tell
1: right. the person we love. This is a particular moment in time, right? We live in a culture in the West at this point that equates intimacy with transparency. Tell all, wholesale sharing. I have no secrets, I can tell you everything. That's the sign of how close we are. Intimacy is into me see. And I'm going to invite you in myself to see what I have that is most prized and today, those assets are no longer my dowry and my herd, but it is my internal life. My feelings, my aspirations, my anxieties, my dreams. I'm going to share those with you. And you are going to reflect that to me and validate me. And I am going to transcend my existential aloneness in this communicative experience between us called Into Me See. In many other societies, that is not the definition of intimacy. And telling all is certainly not what you do with your partner. You may tell it to your sister. He may tell it to your brother. You may tell it to your friend, to your mother, but not necessarily to your spouse. We today see the spouse as the best friend. And mm-hmm. the best friend is the one to whom you tell everything. So we have, And we have social media. So we live between transparency and secrecy. What has really gotten lost is privacy. It's gotten lost on a political level, on a national security level. It's gotten lost because of television and reality TV. It's gotten lost now on a further level because of social media where we prostrate ourselves in all kinds of fictitious stories about our life. And so it's a very interesting moment. What does it mean to recapture privacy in a culture that glorifies transparency Or on the other side, it becomes secrecy. It's never been easier to cheat, and it's never been more difficult to keep a secret. Mm. That's the context in which we are. The notion that there's a certain kind of boundary, border, opaqueness, privacy, that intensifies the erotic, because it intensifies otherness, because it says that you stay curious about your partner, who remains forever mysterious, somewhat elusive, and whom you go to visit, or whom you invite to visit you in your own red-light district, is a construct that I have often adhered to, because when I read about the psychology of eroticism, about the art of eroticism, or the erotic arts, arts erotica, which has existed forever, it was always clear that the playing with the border, the entrance, the exit, the hovering around another person, metaphorically as well as physically, is where the tension rises, rather than the in and out, the, you know, the certainty, the, um, the, the close deal, is the pragmatism, of the way that we live our lives isn't necessarily what fuels the erotic. The erotic actually has often been much more lodged around a zone that is more mysterious, more uncertain, more f- more opaque, more fluid. You don't know for sure. When you flirt, you have no idea if this is going to lead to something or not. You're playing with possibility. You're teasing with the tip of the sword, le fleuret. That's where the word comes from. And I've often thought that that border that is often described in religion, in mysticism, is essential to the erotic. Um, there's a reason we keep understanding that, that eroticism thrives on the forbidden. Uh, you know, It doesn't go where, it is, where it's allowed and where it's expected. That's not where it really finds itself. And maybe, so that's what leads you to then ask questions about what is the connection between transgression and eroticism? That doesn't mean that you don't share a lot of things with your partner and that a deep level of honesty, of erotic intimacy, is deeply honest and open. So what is erotic intimacy? It's when you share fundamental parts of who you are through the language of eroticism Mm. with a person, with another, that you feel safe with, free with, open with. And that is very honest, but it is a different kind of honesty than the relating of... Where did you go? What did you do? Who did you talk to? What did you eat? What, you know, the kind of reporting of factual information that makes us open books and often eats away at the curiosity that we still have for our partner, the curiosity of who are you. Every time I approach you, I don't really fully, fully know who I'm going to find rather than it's done deal, it's foregone conclusion, it's always the same. Well, I love the point about,
0: I've been in relationships where I've said to that person, you're my best friend, and yet there's been so many other things missing. And I realized that by saying that, I was kind of trying to say, I love you so much, but there isn't this other part to us that I want. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, I mean, eroticism goes together. And when I say eroticism, it's not sexuality. I think that's where we need to start. Animals have sex. It's the instinct, it's the biology, it's the pivot. We have an erotic life, which means that we transform sexuality through our human imagination. That's what makes it erotic. The central agent of the erotic is our imagination, not our acts. Mm. You can do the acts and feel nothing. Eroticism is the poetics of sex. It's that which gives sexuality meaning.
0: Well, and that's why in your book and with your clients, you talk too about, you know, where are the boundaries or what is an affair? If someone's having such an intense um, connection with someone, it's not doesn't have to be about the actual sex. I guess could you talk about the way those three ways that you um, kind of talk about the the feelings we have within that? kind of what you talk about as holding infidelity?
1: So there are many, many questions about what constitutes an affair. What is infidelity? And there is no universally agreed upon definition. Historically, it was not that complicated. You had sex with somebody else and nine months later you had a baby and the color of the hair of that baby wasn't yours. The lines were clear. We have today many more things that we perceive as being outside of the boundaries, outside of the pact, the contract, the agreement, the relational setup between two people. And it goes from watching porn, which is much more an issue in straight couples than I ever hear in gay couples, to having lap dances, to going to a strip club, to connecting with your exes on Facebook, to full-blown love affairs, to hookups when you're drunk. I mean, the definition keeps on expanding. And that is very important. So then the next question is, who defines it? The person who is hurt? When you connect with your ex-girlfriend, that, to me, is a betrayal. Do I decide that? Who decides where the infringement or the trespassing takes place? Some people say it is defined as a trespassing by the person who experiences the hurt of it. Other people say the person who is doing the trespassing also gets to decide. And everybody, in this sense, has two monogamy agreements. The explicit one, the vows, the contracts, the spoken stuff. And the implicit one, the ones you do personally with yourself.
0: And then and the justifications that you there have. And there are
1: loads of justifications in there. What, you know, some person will tell you going to a strip club, not at all. The other one says, in fact, the strip club is what prevents me from having an affair. I'm not touching anybody. The other one says, because there was no sex, there was no affair. And the other one says, because it was just sex, there was no affair. (coughs) (laughs) Or there was no infidelity, or there was no betrayal. And everybody is playing with these things, on all sides, for that matter. Of course, the people who try to justify that they didn't do something egregious will... Try to come up with an argument in their favor, which their partner often will completely see as ridiculous. And those two realities will coexist. Um, And much of the time, people have not spoken about it early on in their relationship. So the only time they talk about it is in the aftermath of a crisis. Mm. And the crisis is not the best time to discuss these things. Every couple needs to negotiate boundaries. Monogamy today is no longer assumed. It's negotiated. What do we mean by it? Where do we like the boundaries? If I fantasize about somebody else than you when I please myself, is that an infringement? In some cases it is.
0: Whew, that's like getting into someone's head and That's right, having but for some people your rules. head and your
1: body belongs to me. Now that you have me, you shouldn't have to think of anybody else because the moment you think of somebody else it means I'm not enough and I should be everything for you. That, too, is a part of a rationale that exists at this moment. For some people, the fact that you meet your ex, I'm very happy that you have a good relationship with your ex. It actually you know, it says something about who you are. For another person, the fact that you have a good relationship with your ex means you're not committed to me. The only way I will know if you're committed to me is if you fully reject or close the door on the other person. It's an endless conversation.
0: When do you suggest couples have that conversation to kind of work out the boundaries early ahead of time? On.
1: But Early on and throughout, because we change, because yeah. life brings things, because you, you want to be able to come. you know. A lot of people very early on size up their partner, and they realize, I saw a couple, you know, um, he has a particular kind of predilection sexually that is much more in the BDSM spectrum, Uh, he understood very early on that that was not a part of him he was going to tell her. And since he was conflicted about that, he found himself a partner who didn't like it. And for many, many years succeeded in having her, you know, hold himself in check, so to speak, which she had no idea about. That's a secret. You know, sexual secrets come in many forms. Do you think, I mean, was she upset that
0: he hadn't told her? You bet. Well, yeah, but I'm also wondering, you know, I think sometimes people keep things from us about what they want and you just wish that they had told you so you could decide if you wanted to. I mean, maybe it's
1: a way for someone to explore a part of themselves as well. True. I'm sure. True. But and then at other times, yeah, it's- I make a clear sense, a signal to you that I can't handle it. Yeah. So I tell you, tell me the truth, and I also tell you, but don't tell me the truth because I can't handle it. Tell me what I like to hear.
0: Yeah,
1: We invite others to lie as well. It's a combination of things in a relationship. It's what I don't want to tell you because I don't, like, don't want to lose you, but it's also what you're telling me that you are prepared to hear from me, all the while telling me I want to know everything about you except what I don't like
0: oh, okay, I'm just doing a mental inventory now of
1: when when and how I might have done this. Um, there's a character in I mean, it can be a simple thing as, you know, I actually really don't like this soup that you've been making to me for 10 years, but you were making this soup with so much gusto and so much enthusiasm and love that I didn't feel like I could tell you that I actually really couldn't care less about having bean soup. I hate bean soup, actually. <laughs> People will do that, you know, and... Um, because sometime, one day I said to you I like it a lot because I wanted to be nice and now you've been preparing this for me for God knows how long and I don't know how to tell you because I want to avoid conflict. You know, part of lying is, the, is an avoidance of conflict. It's a challenge of being able to hold on to oneself in the presence of another and accept that I may say no and you may not like it and those two things need to coexist at some point.
0: I definitely feel... Of a, I'm just thinking of myself in a childhood of avoiding conflict or of not wanting to have a parent be upset with me mm-hmm. or even be around it. It probably has led to me, you know, kind of you maneuver around things instead of saying stop or mm-hmm. no like or, it. Yep. or to avoid conflict.
1: Yep. Whew, okay, I'm just thinking of. I mean, it's important. Uh, yeah, no, no. You because it it's important to see that we don't just do this around sexuality or the big issues. We this is part of the kind of interactions that go on between couples as a whole.
0: So, Gillian is a character in your book, and she her husband has an affair, and I thought it was very interesting because I think your advice to her was. What do you like to do and who
1: are you? The idea that to connect with somebody without disconnecting from ourselves and the ability to be able to hold both, I think is the way that we look at one model for thriving relationships these days. Okay, so yes, the notion that you're going to merge with your person, your partner, that you're going to become one that that person is going to become your main lifeline and going to feed one of your need, that you're going to leave everything that you had before with you, it's not an uncommon challenge for women. Women often feel that they can be quite independent when they are alone. And they lose that often when they enter into a relationship. And a lot of it has to do with the way we are socialized as women. We are, we, you know... Uh, men often are socialized to lose the connection to their vulnerability, to others, to their feelings, in order to become powerful, striving, fearless competitors. But women are socialized to be caring and to be nice, and they often lose their own voice. And hence, their challenge is the empowerment. The challenge for the guy is often to be able to actually connect without. Fe- and the challenge for her is to be able to feel empowered in connection. Mm. Everybody has to grapple, to bring back a peace in order to feel whole. And many women today struggle with it even more so because they want to be able to hold on with their career, their friendships, their connections, their community, everything that they've, you know, you're 37, you would have been married at 21, not too long ago. 19, 20, 21, in 1960, 80% of Americans in their 20s were married. Today it's 20%. So that gives you 21, 37, 15 years, 16 years of life, of thinking about you, developing yourself, strengthening your identity, defining it. Of course, when you are in a relationship, it starts to feel like I don't want to lose all of this hard-won labor and results. At the same time, I think relationships are not just eating at us, you mm-hmm. know. They don't diminish us. They, I've always thought of them as they, as they expand us. They become the base from which you become more of what you are and bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a restriction. There is a real thinking today about relationships as being restrictive, you know. Uh, people feel that there is more security in an MBA than in a relationship. I, I come from the generation a little bit before that. And for women, there is such a fear to return to, a, to the subjugation that women and the submissiveness that women used to experience in the past, that there is a bracing that often occurs around entering into an intimate relationship, the fear that it's going to, to, to dissolve that which I have worked so hard to be. Um, and so that's where you find yourself, Um, At some point, that said, it's true. I have always thought, but that's not an original idea, that a relationship does not exist in a vacuum, that it needs a community. It's what Eli Finkel in his research calls diversification. The more there are people around you, the more... The relationship is not only about what happens Mm. between you and your partner, but what you and your partner allow for each of you to experience in the world and to bring into the couple. It's a very different feeding system. In one, everything has to be fed between two people. In the other, they also feed each other, but they also make each other, they give each other the platform from which to go into the world and each one finds their own nurturance, connections, inspirations, mentors, friends, families, and then they bring that back into the relationship so they have something to feed the other one with and themselves. And then if there is a weakness moment in the couple, a crisis, a distancing, then you are held by the community around you and you can weather this rather than the kind of isolation that people feel today. Part of why I did the podcast is because, where should we begin, is because couples are massively isolated. Nobody knows what's really going on in the backstage of couples. Maybe sometimes women will talk to women in heterosexual couples and men talk to nobody. And when it comes to sexuality, they talk even less. And when it comes to forbidden sex, the lies are massive. So, you know, you used to have an idea of what was going on in your neighbor's house. Mm. Today, if you part, if your best friends break up, sometimes you didn't even see it coming. It's even surprising to you because because that's it. It's like you were the one that I was meant to discuss everything with. And when you're not there for me, I no longer have other people to turn to because I haven't maintained these connections as part of my life, as part of my relational life, not just my life away from my relationship.
0: I think my opinion of going to weddings has shifted and changed too. I love going to weddings. And I think, but for a while there, you know, if I thought of my own, I was like, oh, I think I'd elope or run away. I couldn't handle it. But when I've... Now I've kind of come back around because I I think that point to which you're talking, there is a moment that I understand now that when a couple looks out to their community and says, like, we will need you to help us um, hear what we're trying to do and, you know, well, I, these are the weddings I like when they're honest about, like, who knows when we'll need one of you to remind us of this day and what we decided to do together. And then I really started to love the idea even more of, you know, a bigger wedding or something because you need that community to say or to support you, Um, which just speaks to, yeah, just this... I love this idea of trying to create people who know and love more about you so both people can be supported
1: it's the way we've always lived. Yeah, yeah, but we've stopped. We've lost it and we desperately need it. We need it for ourselves as a couple and we certainly need it for our family with kids. I mean, this line, it takes a village, is never been true, more true.
0: I guess to make a little shift, because there's so many parts of the book and I want to cover it for lots of people who are listening. Um, one thing I found very interesting is I, let me I highlighted here what is this note that says I've plenty of men who were the lovers of married women or married men but I've yet to meet a man who was single and gave his love to another man's wife for 30 years hoping she would leave and come and make a family with him What is it about kind of the female psychology or why do you think women stay as the the third party hoping and wanting for the person they're having an affair with to leave their other family. I mean, people do leave their families, so you never know. But it's interesting that men don't stay in that dynamic.
1: Right, they don't have to. I think primarily it had to do with power and privilege. That didn't mean that men didn't fall in love with married women, but they didn't necessarily forego their whole life waiting for her. There is no man's woman snatcher. There is no male homewrecker. There is no other man. There's Mm -hmm. always been the other woman, the snatcher, the homewrecker, you name it. And often she was taken care of by him in the old days financially. Often they even had a child together. Uh, And often she felt that she had with him a part of him that nobody else had. Um, In a way, she preferred not to be the wife. She preferred to be the lover. And at the same time, she had to suffer the lack of legitimacy of being the lover because when you are that woman, you don't have a secret, you are the secret. And when you live as a secret, you also can't tell it to anybody. And, on, uh, I've, you know, there is no way that that delegitimization doesn't on some level affect someone. That said, that they may still choose that. Um, do you remember the old movie Back Alley? It's, no. a, it's an old film, you know, and um, basically he, she's kept in an old back alley in a little flat while he has his whole public life. And, you know, as, as they often say, I can't give you Tuesday and I can't give you Sunday, but I can give you the rest. And you will never be with me in public, but you will get to see the private part of me that nobody else may have ever seen. It's a, it's a very, actually quite clear uh, bargain, agreement, you know, um, in some strange way. Sometimes you are more honest with the lover The lover knows about the spouse, the spouse doesn't know about the lover. It's a big mess. I mean, in the the sense that if love is messy, infidelity is even more so. And it's an old story. Men have not had to forego in this way. um, A life, a, a public life, children, legitimacy, while waiting for 30 years for 30 years sometimes, 20 years, 10 years, for the wife of another man maybe one day to leave to be with them. They just didn't think that that was their position. They didn't feel like that kind of submissiveness was part of the male code. So what happens
0: now as women become more financially independent? um, How... I mean, that's going to shift and is shifting the dynamics between people and ma- the reasons for marriage so much. Do you think because women are now more financially independent, they want that person to fulfill their romantic and everything? Or is it that now women can be have these other lives as well, like professional lives, that they come stronger to a relationship?
1: I mean, it's also tricky. The best place to go compare this is what were relationships like under communism. Under communism, people had equal income. 90% of divorces, actually 97% of divorces in the Soviet Union used to be initiated by women. If I don't need you for any economic incentive, then the only reason I want to be with you is for the, emotional, for the quality of the emotional connection between us. And if it isn't good, there's absolutely no reason that I should continue to do you laundry. Mm-hmm. And so they left. And their life didn't change as much. We, you know, Here, for a long time, the, the quality of life, the economic quality of life of women dropped by 30-40% overnight after divorce. So, um, what does economic independence give women? An enormous amount. There's just no, no, no doubt. It allows her to choose. It allows her to wait. It allows her to uh, not feel beholden. It allows her to um, know that if she one day was to not be with her spouse, she would be able to take care of herself and her children. I mean, um, it allows her to be in a completely different negotiation. Often today she actually out-earns her male partner, Um And the the economic uh, disparity is tilting in the other direction. And it has also allowed her to rapidly close the infidelity gender gap. Mm -hmm. Um, Women today are rapidly experiencing the same levels of transgressions as the men. The consequences are not nearly as dire in the West. She no longer has to face a scarlet letter or an ostracism, or a destitution, or a pregnancy, or a death. She's got contraception, she's got economic independence, and she's got no full divorce laws, and she's not going to be excommunicated from the church. That, are, Those are four major social factors that have changed the playing field for women. Well, we still have to fight for some
0: of them. None of it, it is con- over. None yeah. of it is
1: over. But this... And none of it is worldly. It is not yeah. all over the world by far. There's still nine countries where women can be killed just for strength. But in the West, where they are, the societies are slightly more egalitarian, striving, this is the changes that she, these are the changes that she is able to experience.
0: A few last questions. A part of the book that I hadn't. Um I just hadn't thought about and I loved trying to think about when I've been jealous and why and I feel like jealousy isn't something we talk about very much you talk in the book how a lot of kind of people with protestant backgrounds or in the west often the the biggest part um one of the problems of an affair is the the break of trust and that this idea that Trust is so important, which it, which it is. But on the flip side, I was just fascinated by the idea of jealousy and in which cultures jealousy is part of um, the dynamics of a relationship more
1: than it mm-hmm. is in America, say. So I'm going to first insert something on the lovers. The interesting thing for me in re- researching the, the third person, the lover, the other woman, is because I had received multiple letters of these women asking me, don't leave us out of the story. Most of the infidelity books that are meant to help couples, the third person is never even mentioned. It's some toxic nuisance that needs to be excised. And yet it is a human being, and it's not often the 19-year-old ingenue. It's women in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s who are divorced, who are widowed, who would rather have something that is maybe imperfect and compromised rather than be completely alone. Uh, They are very realistic. They are pragmatic. They know exactly what their situation is. They are women with economic independence, actually, uh, often. So it's not at all the kind of mythology, Mm. stereotypic way that we look at who is the that other woman that's coming to snatch my men away. There's a lot about the young woman. But in fact, there is a whole other group of people. The State of Affairs is a book about relationships and about modern love. And one of the elements I wanted to also understand is jealousy in modern couples. I took the lens of infidelity, the betrayal, the the, the breach of trust, the violation, because... What better way to understand resilience and repairing in relationships than to go and look at what is today seen as one of the worst crises a couple can deal with. And I've worked with so many people, hundreds of people who've been shattered by this experience. And I, 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 I thought from here, from, from the destruction, I can glean what do thriving relationships really need and look like. And jealousy was one of these elements that um, I often found missing in the work of my colleague Michelle Schoenckmann. She writes extensively about how, you know, all the books about infidelity do not mention jealousy. You have to go to the opera for that Mm -hmm. or fiction or movies. What happened? Um, And we have often replaced what used to be described as jealousy as being trauma. And I thought, jealousy is an erotic wrath. That's the work of a beautiful uh, French writer, Julia Sissa, philosopher, analyst, who writes about the rage that rises in you when your partner takes the love and the desire and goes to give it to someone else. And of course, and it has existed throughout evolution. What do we do with that rage? How do we harness it? how do we allow people to tap into it because it's intrinsic to love when they feel rejected as a form of, as a way to to use it as a source of empowerment to go and to fight for the person that they want to get back and to see dignity in that. I'm not talking about pathological jealousy. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the natural reaction that we have when our partner goes to the third, because jealousy exists in triangles. Envy exists in dyads, but jealousy needs a triangle. It's something that was ours that you've taken to somebody else and that I'm losing. Now, so I thought we never mentioned that feeling anymore, and especially when people are in more egalitarian uh, context, they like to just say, you know, I'm not jealous, I'm angry. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, no, 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 you're jealous. And it's not, not PC. It's actually, it shows that you love the person and use it. And it's true that Latin cultures have often seen jealousy much more as intrinsic to love rather than a shaming feeling that you shouldn't have if you are truly confident. No, confident people feel jealous when they're about to lose that which they prize so much. It's a natural response. It's a, it's a human response. It's an age-old response. And we shouldn't just pretend it doesn't exist. Actually, we should tap into it and make use of it.
0: One well, to your point, I realize that we've had this whole conversation. We haven't talked about all the reasons why people have affairs, but that's why you have to get the book. But the point you're making is so... Um, Interesting to me because um, I mean, I've just thought of when I was jealous and how the, the kind of pressure to be cool and relaxed, and that if I'm, yeah, a truly secure person, I won't have an emotional reaction to anything is so ridiculous because there's nothing better than when someone's like, I saw how that he looked at you and how you looked at him and I want you. And then, of course, you have great sex that night and you're connected again. But I also think... Not always. Sometimes you have a good fight. Yeah, But but basically, I want this. I also think, too, that the reason sometimes we seek other um, kind of affirmation outside of a relationship is because the partner we're with... A, isn't jealous of anything or doesn't seem to have a pulse about anything we do. And so kind of we do look elsewhere for someone to love us, to have a reaction to us. And I think, um, you know, sometimes I think Alain de Botton, he talks about kind of the rage that people can feel who have the affair because they're so desperate to be seen by their partner and their partner is withholding. And you talk a lot about you know why does an affair happen the person who has the affair is always the terrible person but what has led up to it has the partner not been interested in sex with them for years you know so I it's all in the book and we we can't go on for too much longer but um yeah just struck on so many chords I'm gonna try and be a bit more like tap into my jealousy more because it's there and not mask it or push it into some other feeling
1: i mean much of the literature um, and the self-help literature or the, the has focused on the impact of affairs on the couple the breach of trust the violation the destruction the betrayal it hasn't always also included you need both the meanings and the motives Why does it happen? Why would people risk losing everything, sometimes after years of having been faithful in a couple? The majority of people are not just chronic philanderers. They've actually been devoted, committed. What happens in relationships that this takes place? And I wanted to write a book that really looked at the dual perspective, what it did to you and what it meant to me. Mm. Affairs are about betrayal, deception, lies, secrecy, transgressions. And they are also about longing and loss and self-seeking and yearning for something, for a connection, for intensity, for renewal, for a feeling of aliveness. They express some of the deepest dilemmas around love and desire. They always have. They've existed throughout marriage since marriage was invented, even when the models of marriage completely changed. The meaning of infidelity today is very different from the meaning of infidelity 200 years ago. I think it's very important that we understand that. To understand modern infidelity, you have to understand modern marriage. Betrayal today is different, because if the betrayal is an expression of male privilege, women felt terrible, but basically they said that's what men do. But today, if I wait till I'm 37, 38, and I find the one and only, and I waited so long for that one and only. When that one And I thought I was their one and only, because they waited too. When that betrayal happens, it is the shattering of the grand ambition of love. It is a level of betrayal, of breaking my entire identity, of making me feel that our whole relationship was a fraud at levels that have never existed before. That doesn't mean that it wasn't painful then, and it isn't painful everywhere. But we interpret our pain. Our pain is interpreted through the, the cultural narrative of the moment. And today, infidelity is the ultimate betrayal, more than anything else. And it becomes one of the leading causes of divorce, something it never was. And it's very important to understand that because it tells you everything about what we today feel we want, what we feel deserving to have, and how we understand love, lust, and commitment. It's made me really
0: work out uh, what my expectations are for love and also how to take note of how they've changed, you know, my 20-year-old self, my 16-year-old self, and now um, I'm not sure where I'm at. You know, we have to, it's an ongoing process, but the book has helped me a lot, like all your work the podcast, um, and your other books and just your Ted talks too. So I think because, I mean, obviously we could go on, but I have to release you so you can go and do your work in the world. Thank you, Esther, for being Thank you here. Very much, Everyone, you can obviously tell that there is lots to explore and there's so much we didn't cover. So go out and buy the state of affairs. Thank you. Thank you. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar 23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgerwood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andrei Rodovsky. Until next time, bye everyone.